Hold on to your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Whoa, it's us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Joey Clark. Welcome to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. It's been a long day, but it's been a good day. But it was one of those days where I could not shut off my mind last night. Oh, that's bad. So I just kept watching stuff on YouTube and listening to podcasts and stuff. And I'll just be blunt, I'll be honest. Um, One of the very last debates Christopher Hitchens did against a guy named William Dembski. And by very last, I mean, for folks who don't know who Christopher Hitchens was, he was obviously more than just the guy who became famous for writing a book called God is Not Great and debating atheism against theists all around the country. Before that, I mean, I, don't always, I didn't always agree with his politics. Uh, mm-hmm. But he, he, it's undeniable how brilliant of a man he was. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very much a deep thinker. And very entertaining, too. Like, yes. it's one thing to be a deep thinker, to be also compelling in terms of... Be able to speak and write in a perfect word. Mix like humor and irony along with scintillating analysis of world events. He was nobody's fool. He was wrong on some things, in my opinion. But uh, it, so to see somebody was so full of life for most of his life, he did not do anything boring. He did never slow down. To see somebody like that at the end of his life, that sadly was his end, completely bald. And frail, losing musculature, you could see it. He still had his voice, but from chemotherapy, I think he died of esophageal cancer. And mm-hmm. uh, his folks haven't read it. His small collection—it's a tiny book just called Mortality. Of uh, and it's in, if you want to know how uh, a very vocal atheist dealt with his own death, it's a it's an incredible book in collection of essays written from a hospital bed often with you know rashes from chemotherapy on them uh it that and so i was kind of sucked in watching that debate and especially that last one it's not what i want to talk about tonight but that last one uh you can tell he's sort of putting everything he has and everything he knows into his effort and he's also talking to a bunch of kids as he put it after that glorious introduction i can't help but feel like a daniel in a den of lion cubs so it had the whole it was a christian university or in school and all sorts of kids he had the audience so he knew he was talking to kids too so he kind of wasn't as biting and going after people but you could tell he realized it was close to the end yeah and it's very compelling to watch um even if you disagree with him yeah and and that's uh i mean just as a side note, I mean that's one of the most important thing about <clears throat> one of the most important things about communication. It's knowing your audience and talking to them. Don't talk down to them. Don't talk over their head, right. and just talk to the audience so they can understand you. 
and get what you're saying. Well, and some of the people, you also learn when you have somebody that vocally, like a Christopher Hitchens, who's not going to pull any punches on his worldview, challenging people, you get to see amongst the believers and the religious who's kind of a lightweight and who's a fraud. I would say that, like, there's a guy named William Lane Craig, not a lightweight. Guy's freaking brilliant. Catholic apologist. Uh, Tim Rutten, another Catholic, writes for the L.A. Times. Brilliant man, has studied his theology very well. Uh, Dinesh D'Souza, sparred with Hitchens at Notre Dame. Great debate. Um, D'Souza does a, a pretty good job marshalling mm-hmm. the facts and the apologetics. Uh, and, and there are several others that Hitchens, like, uh, who is the guy? Uh, Dennis Prager. He's got a radio show. Like, their discussions were always great. Yeah. Um, but then there's one debate Hitchens did, and it shows how much of a charlatan this guy is. Reverend Al Sharpton. <laughs> and Sharpton was a joke. Yeah. Up against somebody like Hitchens, it just showed how, it, oh, man, it was bad. And Hitchens makes the point. That, yeah, now if you put reverend in front of your name, you can get away with almost any manner of sins. Yeah. And I, I don't want to accuse any reverends. Most, I, I have a priest in my family, and I want to assume the best, but he has a point that uh, a some people... A very good you know, point. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. People label themselves as reverend. Mm. In that way, it's like, <laughs> oh, well, the reverend, right. you know, Joey Clark said so-and-so, so it must be true. He's a good man. He's and a holy man. That's yeah. the coat and tie philosophy that, you know, that we're, it, I mean, it's, it's built into us from kindergarten on the person, which I know it's not like this now, but it used to be, you know, the teacher either had a, a nice dress on or a coat and town. Right. And if you've got a coat and town, just like your preacher in a Protestant church, whatever the guy with the coat and tie says, mm-hmm. you got to accept it as fact. That's the fact. Well, and this is a general rule for me, and it gets us closer to the topic I wanted to discuss tonight. Uh, is anybody that you want to believe in as a trusted authority, whether it's your preacher or your senator or your president... Or let's just say, for the sake of argument, the the ideal of the government itself, because it has so much power and is trusted with so much power for the sake of good things, maybe even necessary evils, I always look at those sorts of authorities a little skeptically. I don't, I don't get cynical. I don't try to accuse anybody of anything, but I have my eyes open. When you are given a certain amount of trust and power and sway over people, you should be watched. And yeah. most of the time, I, I'm happy to report people use their authority responsibly. It's a, it's a gift. It is a great thing. But you got to watch out. Are you sure it's most of the time? Well, not when it comes to the state. I think... We are in a crisis mode, or no, we're, we've had a crisis mode, almost a war mentality pushed on us. You heard, these are seven famous words, Southernwood, seven famous words. They came out right after the end of World War One, So we're talking the 20s, really. Mm-hmm. I think this is 1921, if I'm remembering correctly. But the seven famous words are war is the health of the state. That was penned by Randolph Bourne. He lived, he was born in 1886, died in, well, so it couldn't have been 
21 when he wrote it, because he died in 1918. Now, people have collected, though, his works that after been the in fact. The, that would have been in, at, right at the end of... Right. Which the United States had no business being in, and he kind of saw it. And actually, the the government, the military side of the government, sort of learned after World War One and going into World War Two. See, after World War One, why did it take the Japanese bombing Pearl Harbor to get the United States into war? I mean, the Nazis were a pretty clear threat before that. The reason why is because people like Randolph Bourne and many others after World War One made a very convincing argument to the American people and the populace as a whole that this was nonsense. We need to get back to our roots of being skeptical of war with a capital W no matter what it is. We need to be skeptical of standing armies. That's the philosophy that founded the nation. Uh, very skeptical of that sort of power, and, and they were very successful in convincing people. So it took an actual attack on Americans at Pearl Harbor to wake the sleeping giant. But Bourne has a he's his point is a is a weird one. It's actually an interesting argument he makes. And the reason this is on my mind tonight, folks, is because the Senate, I don't know if they passed it already, but they last night voted to end debate on a resolution and many other things. See, I I I have having to do with, with what you're fixing to bring up. Having to do with all sorts of aspects of war in the Middle East. So they ended debate. And now this bill, it's simply, I think, Senate Bill 1, put forward by Marco Rubio, does all sorts of things. For the most part, it just maintains the status quo. For the most part. It, it makes good on something like $38 billion, $37 billion worth of armament sales to Israel. Mm-hmm. It makes clear okay. and allows states and other entities to not do business with anybody who's part of the okay. boycott of Israel. Yeah. Okay. It it does several things, but the one thing that it also does, and actually Senator Rand Paul took to the floor to sort of chastise his fellow senators. He's kind of lonely in this stance, unfortunately. I'm sure he is. Is they are chastising the Senate. Democrats and Republicans, for the most part, chastising President Donald Trump for mm-hmm. a precipitous withdrawal from Syria mm-hmm. and Afghanistan. Yeah. yeah, and and I and I, the, where I take issue with this have have we declared war on Afghanistan? No. Did the, did the Congress vote on that and declare war on them? Actually, Afghanistan. Yes, the first we haven't declared war proper since World War Two. Okay. All right. Well, but the Congress I, I, did authorize use of military force after nine eleven. Authorize is is the same thing. It was was this not a president in the past that said, "Hey, we're going into and by executive order or what have you, whatever you want to call it." Well, that's certainly the case. We're in going Syria. in. That's the case in Syria. That's the case in Libya. The case in supporting the Saudis bomb Yemen. That's the case in many North Korea. The Korean War was that way too, actually. And and that's I mean, hell, Vietnam was Vietnam in many ways. Yeah, I mean, there was never war declared. If we're going to to declare war, there are provisions in the Constitution of how you do that, and it is a vote by the Congress to say yes, we need to go defeat these people. And war is not pretty. It's not. 
let's go over there and, you know, kill a couple of bad guys. No, war is freaking ugly. I mean, it's terrible. I mean, civilians get killed. Yes. But if you're going to do it, do it, get it over with. I mean, it... it, it Wait, actually whole, win wars? Yeah, I mean... Go, come home? And the, the whole deal sucks. Nobody wins. Hmm. Everybody loses in war. Well, and uh, in, in a minute, to some well, extent, in, in the minute, in a minute, I'll advance what Randolph Bourne really means by "war is the health of the state," because all those things you just said, Clay Southernwood eighty four, whatever the hell your name is, all those things you just said are absolutely true. Now, war is war, no matter if the Congress wants to call it a kinetic action or authorization of military force. Skirmish, right. what have you. you. Know, we're just bombing some folks. That's not war. Yeah, it kind of is, guys. Anyway, it, it reminds me of, like, John Kerry in front of the Senate Foreign Relations and Armed Services Committee saying, Oh, if we bomb Assad, it's just a pinprick. It's just a tactical strike. Yeah, so what's the grander strategy within that tactical strike, John? My goodness. Yeah, and, and my point is if a previous president started it, just said, hey, we're going to go into Syria and do something, then the president now, I mean, elections have consequences. Yep. He was elected for that. One of the reasons he was elected, you can bring him to the wall, you can bring him to the Supreme Court, but Donald Trump made a full-throated argument in, of all places, South Carolina. Yeah. That we don't need to be over in the Middle East. And he won the primary, wasting all of these people's lives and all of our money and showing nothing for it. Yeah. It's a great argument. I think most people... It's, that's one of the, the true messages that actually goes across party. And when I talk to everyday folks, that is one of the messages that really resonates. We, especially military members who have done tours there. It's amazing. And what's, why I'm saying it's amazing is because the war party in both two parties in Washington, and I think the deep state, can't stand that the people are feeling this way. Yeah. So I want to do something a little unusual here, because I don't often play clips on the show. And I have not heard this yet. I've only just read about it a little bit. But Senator Rand Paul took to the floor last night. He's one of the few people that stood up and actually uh, supports the president in his decision to withdraw from Syria. So I kind of want to give a listen to what he has to say here for a second. Let's do it. I want to compliment President Trump on being bold enough and strong enough to do something no president has contemplated in decades, Republican or Democrat, and that is to end the war in Afghanistan. We've been there for 17 years. We voted on a resolution initially that said that we would go after the people who attacked us on 9-11 and anyone who aided or abetted them. We did that. Today, there is no one living who attacked us on 9-11 that is free. There is no one living who aided or abetted the people who attacked us on 9-11. By any measurement, we are victorious. We killed bin Laden. We have disrupted the terror camps in Afghanistan. Is Afghanistan a mess? Sure, it's a mess. It's always been a mess and always will be a mess. But now our mission has changed to nation building. I want to compliment President Trump for being bold and brave and saying enough's enough. Let's spend that money at home. 
We spend $51 billion a year in Afghanistan. That money could be spent at home. I've got three members of my family in the military. I don't want them to go to Afghanistan. Every one of our political and military leaders, Republican, Democrat, and Independent, will tell you there is no military mission in Afghanistan, and yet we stay. Some of the very same people who say we have no mission in the next breath say we need to send more troops there. We sent 100,000 and we completely had victory and then they came back as our troops came down. Are we to send 100,000 and keep them there forever? This resolution is an insult to the president and I will oppose it. This resolution is put forward by Republicans who say to President Trump that you are leaving precipitously from Afghanistan. How do you leave precipitously after 17 years? 17 years. We are no longer fighting anyone who attacked us on 9-11. The people we are fighting were not even born when 9-11 happened. The war over there has nothing to do with 9-11. It has to do with nation building. And I'll tell you what one Navy SEAL told me that I met a year or two ago. He says, we'll go anywhere, we'll kill our enemy, we'll do what you ask of us. But the mistake is when you ask us to stay, plant the flag, and become policemen. They don't want to be policemen. Our military do not want to be the policemen of the world. You're here. We fight when we have to and we should come home. That money should be spent here at home. I completely and vigorously oppose this condemnation of the president. They say we're leaving precipitously. We've been there 17 years. The same people, the War Caucus, and they're on both sides of the aisle, will also tell you if you announce that you're leaving in six months, then you're telegraphing to the enemy that you're leaving. So they don't want us to leave precipitously, but they don't want us to leave in a planned way. They've left us no way to leave. People talk about bipartisanship. What is the one thing that brings Republicans and Democrats together? War. They love it. More the better. Forever war. Perpetual war. We're spending $51 billion a year in Afghanistan. We spend it on luxury hotels that are half completed. The contractors have run off with the money. One of the hotels that sits across from our embassy serves as a place for snipers to shoot at our soldiers. We have to now patrol this half-built hotel where the guy who was building it ran off with the money. The government we supported, the Karzai government for a decade, grew more poppy than anybody in the world. The guy's brother was a drug dealer, his other brother was a thief and ran off with money. Is it any wonder that the Afghan people turn away from the government we've given them? It's time to declare victory and come home. Amen. Gosh, he's, that, that was good. But that, folks, to show how terrible the situation is, is one voice in the Senate out of pretty much a hundred. There might be some people who agree with Rand a little bit, but they're not speaking up like that. No, they're not, because they're all in the pocket of the big... War is huge money. It's good business we, we, for I people. Mean, yeah. we, Joey, you and I, we can't even comprehend the money. Right. It's not like ten grand. No. It, you know, if I said, hey, man, I'm, I want you to do a podcast once a week for $10,000 a year. <laughs> all over it. I mean, that's big money to you. No, this, this, this we're, we're talking money. about not just millions. We're talking billions of dollars on at stake. 
with these because, nope, we've got to have a better fighter jet. We've got to do all this R&D. You know, we've got to build them. We've got to manufacture them. The government has to pay for them. And we spend billions of dollars. Not all of it is not necessary. I but think a lot we, of it is. I think we do need a very strong military. Sure. The, the you know, Reagan, you know, just be stronger than everybody right. else and you don't have to go to war right. rather than being all over there are still freaking Russian tanks in the deserts of Afghanistan because you're not going to beat those people over there they are, they are clans and they will never give up if you don't drop a nuclear bomb over there and completely wipe, wipe them off the face of the earth it will never stop they have been clans for 5,000 years. And especially when the people were backing, as he just pointed out, most of them are incredibly corrupt, so no wonder everyday people there rebel. Well, that's what we did with Iran and Iraq. Yeah. All through the, the late 70s into the 80s. What did we do in the 70s? We built Iraq up so that they could keep Iran in check. And then what happens? Then Iraq gets up. Then we build Iran up to yep. keep Iraq in check. And it's it's never going to stop. When the UN or the League of Nations drew those borders and forced those people to stay in those borders, it ruined that part of the country. They're never, ever... Look up the Native Americans from this country and how they, the Creek, the Cherokee, mm-hmm. the Sioux, the Blackfoot, I mean, you, you name the Indian tribe. That's the way they were. They're tribal nomads, yes. and they're never going to get along. And if you put them all in one spot, they're going to continue to fight. They're not about freedom. The, our country, we have this misnomer that, and I remember George W. Bush saying this, we want to bring freedom to the Middle East. They don't want freedom. They want power. Yes. They want to be the ones in power and the ones to say, ah, now. Well, and also. This I, is what you did to my people right. for 20 yes. you know, years or 50 years or 40 years well, or whatever it is. Now I'm in power. Well, I'm going to do the same thing to you. And I want to turn back what you just said. And I agree completely. But I want to turn what you just said back on the guy who said it. I think when George W. Bush saying, you know, we're spreading freedom and democracy, maybe he literally believed it. But I think he didn't actually want freedom. He wanted power. Or some of the people around him. Maybe I'll give W. a pass. I shouldn't. But the lives lost, American lives and lives of People just caught up in the midst of it, civilians. The lives displaced. Yeah, how's the refugee crisis in Europe going? Yeah. Swimmingly. You know, so well, isn't it, folks? So the lives lost, the lives displaced, the trillions of dollars spent. Essentially, we're just setting up Afghanistan and making it ripe for China and India and other countries, too, economically speaking, commercially speaking. But that, all those costs, what a heavy price to pay, the heaviest being one's life. I don't think those are the greatest costs, though. 
think on a personal level, losing your life in tour duty is the greatest cost. But the greatest cost of this war mentality, not just a specific war, a specific action, but this mentality that drove most of these senators, 90-something of them, to rebuke the president for doing something he was duly elected to do, it's a mentality. And it leads to a cost, to a price that I think is bringing it, this nation to its knees. It's the real meaning behind the famous seven words, war is the health of the state. We'll get to that actual cost, that corrosive price that is, I think, wearing us down. But first, we got to hit a break. And as I was telling you off air, Southernwood, I'm sore as hell, man. Ah! But I but, asked for it. But and it's the type of sore where I felt like I did something, though. I feel good, like I accomplished something. Look, brother, brother. Yeah, brother. You are You are looking good, oh, though. Thank you, brother. I mean, your arms are like busting out of your freaking shirt sleeves now. Oh, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. That's part of what you I'm You got them for. big old biceps. Yeah, and, yeah, I'm getting stronger, you know. Yeah. Like, whoo, dang, you're like freaking Popeye. Well, and because I've started, on top of yoga, I'm keeping the DDPY going. Don't just call his stuff yoga. It's I'm keeping the DDPY going. But I'm also on Monday mornings and Friday mornings, but then also when I can at night during the rest of the week to do some lighter workouts, I'm going by Express Fitness 24-7. See, I wanted to go to Express, but, you know, I work late or I'm up here late, well, so then that's I perfect. don't have time to go by well, the gym because they you. close at 7 o'clock. Well, no, no, but listen, you just left out, you said Express. It's Express yeah. Fitness the key is 24-7. Once you become a member at what? Express Fitness 24-7, you get a key fob. That's simple technology. You have access to the gym, whatever location you're looking for, anytime you please. So, like, I wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning yeah, maybe that's and, and can't go back to sleep, and, and I say, hey, I want to go to the gym. Well, the gym's not open. I can actually go there yeah. at 2 a.m. Yes. and work out. Yeah, you got a key fob. You're a member. Come on Damn. in. Yeah, and they've got locations. I'm going to the Montgomery one on Zelda Road. Uh-huh. What is it? The uh, Festi- Hillwood Festival Shopping Center. There's a one part of the gym right above Firehouse Subs and then right across the parking lot. Split facility. I'm When I'm doing my heavy workouts, I go to the facility that has you know your power racks, your big barbells. You can do deadlift and squat and bench press and lap pull-down machines and all sorts of row machines. and It's Great facility. The equipment is state-of-the-art, and it's usually always available. But there's also you know, like car- more cardio machines and your standard cable weight machines um, above firehouse subs. Great things going on at the Montgomery location, but they also have locations in Prattville, Millbrook, Wetumpka, Clanton, Pine Level. So pretty much anybody who's hearing my voice right now, Express Fitness 24-7 has a location for you. So... Try them out. I encourage you to find your specific location. Go to expressfitness24.com. Expressfitness24.com. Go by. Sign up. It's worth it, folks. It's. I, I'm sore, but I like it. I'm sore, but it's like this is what I asked for. And I'm enjoying doing this and getting stronger each and every week. And I think you will, too. So go try it out. And what's great about these folks is maybe you feel a little intimidated, fish out of water, hadn't been to the gym in a while. They'll give you a few free sessions of personal training. What are your goals? Here are the machines, some of the workouts and exercises you can do. It's win-win across the board, folks. So, again, check them out. Express Fitness 24-7. That's expressfitness24.com. And 
when you go sign up, tell them Joey sent you. Do that little thing for me. Now, coming back, we're going to answer what's the true meaning of the phrase, war is the health of the state, and what is the true cost mm. beyond the lives, beyond the money spent, beyond all the geopolitical ramifications, what's the moral cost Your to... Your soul. Well, it's pretty close, but we'll answer that after the break. Joey Clark. I'm on this thing where the Senate is reprimanding the president for his precipitous withdrawal from Syria and Afghanistan. Ridiculous. And it reminds me of a phrase, war is the health of the state. Again, written by a man named Randolph Bourne in the midst of World War I. But he has an interesting definition, what he means by the state. He makes distinctions, and I like distinctions when they're useful. But his editor, after he died, uh, there was a collection of Randolph Bourne's essays put together in 1964. It was called War and the Intellectuals. And the editor of that collection had this to say about the phrase, war is the health of the state. Quote, in its proper place, the saying meant that mindless power thrived on war because war corrupted a nation's moral fabric and especially corrupted its intellectuals. So it's not just the guys in the Senate. What do you think the media has to say about this? The national media in particular. What do you think of your hoity-toity writers, whether in the Washington Post or the New York Times or wherever, think about these decisions to withdraw troops? Most of them are against it. There are a select few that are sort of waking up to, we don't need to keep doing this. And th- this is the same media that two years ago were warning about Donald Trump being a warmonger and right. getting us into more wars. Mm-hmm. And, right. Okay. Exactly. So, so, but now they like war. Right. Okay. But we like these. I'm just making sure ones. we're talking yeah. about the same media. Yeah. And now, America, we've been at war now, what? Good, nearly two decades in this struggle. Nearly. Yeah, almost three because it started back in like yeah. Well, the early the late eighties well, is get, when we bombed Gaddafi. Mm-hmm. Then you have the Iraq Iran War. Iran Iraq War. You have also Desert Storm, which is kind of putting Saddam back in his place. It's weird. A young Dick Cheney can be found clips of him saying, "Why didn't you go all the way and topple Saddam?" He's like, "Well, the country would break into three nations of Shia, Sunni, and Kurdish." And what in the oh. hell would be wrong with that? Yeah. They would be better off if they did that well that's what's uh what's come to pass since saddam has been toppled that and you know iran is pretty much running that country you know those religious 
ties are interesting like that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, Randolph Bourne has this interesting definition of what he means by the state. So he makes distinctions, and again, I like useful distinctions. He, for instance, thought in times of peace, and I tend to agree with him, the majority of people pursue their own interests according to their own values. They work and cooperate with each other, marry and raise children, pay mo- and don't pay much attention to the state, as Bourne understands it. They occasionally deal with government, which he says is different than the state. He says, government is a framework of the administration of laws and the carrying out of the public force. Government is the idea of the state put into practical operation in the hands of definite, concrete, fallible men. So government's like your practical day-to-day, like your person working for the post office. You're the guy working on the roads for DOT. That's what Bourne kind of considered government, that even in peacetime we'd still have these things. And they're not sanctified. They're not praised on high as these great... Nobody's going up and talking to somebody, even the public school system, and talking to them like you would talk to the president, let's say. Okay. Certain institutions start to touch on being sanctified, like they, they're a little bit above everyday life. Like what we'll see tonight at the State of the Union. That's not how we treat most government employees. And we don't treat them badly, but it's like, okay, you're doing your job. It's a usually a boring clerical job, whatever. Thank you. I'm glad, you know, who doesn't just let out a sigh of relief or get a headache when you're at the DMV if it takes too long or, you know, it finally goes smoothly? It's, it's sort of these boring, mundane things that need to be done, but... Necessities. Yeah, and so that's what he thinks government is. Now, he puts... So he starts at the individual, which we should remember. Then he goes to society, which is like our culture and our religions and all the different things that connect us that have nothing to do with government. Then it has government, which is sort of the mundane operations, the practical things. Mayors have to, like Todd Strange has to deal with government a lot. That's essentially what a mayor's job is. Especially in a humble city, even a capital city like Montgomery, Alabama. Mm -hmm. Even a governor is more dealing with kind of practical measures of government. That's right, Chuck. But the state is completely different. What does Bourne say? The average person rarely deals with the state. That is, with institutions that were sanctified and expressed as the enduring state such as things like the Supreme Court or the Presidency or the Congress. Thus, in times of peace, Bourne writes, or he wrote, the sense of the state almost fades out of the consciousness of men. Now, I don't know if it's actually faded out of our consciousness, and we'll get to why in a second. It's more than just actual war. It's the war mentality. But in other words, the state, according to Randolph Bourne, and I tend to agree with him, is more of a concept than like a physical reality. So in the United States, it is the political structure established after the American Revolution that's embodied in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. It claims a chain of legitimacy and continuity, going all the way back to George Washington. While governments come and go with elections, like the Trump administration replaced the Obama administration, Obama administration replaced the W. Bush administration, blah, 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 the state is still there, no matter who's the administration or the government in power. But no matter who is there running things, it seems like the state, some might call it globalist, some might call it the deep state, but the state seems to be only growing stronger with time. 
It is the state rather than government that inspires emotions such as awe and patriotism, for right or for wrong. It is to the concept of the American state, not to any particular government, Republican or Democratic, to which people pledge their allegiance with hands placed over their hearts. So the state is like the idea of our country. Right. And I can see that because as much as as I did not like... uh, President Obama, I mean, I never voted for him, nor would I ever vote for him. I would have actually considered it, I wouldn't say necessarily an honor, but I would willingly have taken a bullet for him to keep our president right. from being killed right. if the situation came up. Well, but also, let's keep this clear, the founders, well, at least most of them, not all of them, the founders understood that's what they mean by limiting the state. That this the state, when it really gets going and feels strong, can consume individual liberty mm-hmm. and sacrifice individual liberty. So to sum up Bourne's preceding argument is, in times of peace, individuals pursue their own self-interest, identify with society, their friends, their family, their church, their social group, whatever, sports occasions, whatever. They interact with kind of mundane government, like you get a driver's license, we hope the roads are fine, and blah, blah, blah. But they rarely actually encounter the sanctified state. But then what happens when war breaks out? When somebody supposedly flies a plane into the World Trade Center. Mm -hmm. And he said, war is the utmost act of a group in its aggressive aspects. War is the herd, as he put it, on the march, going against another herd organized in the same way. War is a function of states, and it could not exist except in such a system. And Bourne argues further that war blurs and erases the lines that separate government from the state and both of them from society. So when it's peaceful, we think of individuals. We think of society. We think of our family, friends, churches, social groups, blah, blah, blah. And we... But we don't conflate that society and individuals with government. We're like, oh, government's a separate thing that might be a little necessary. But no, when war breaks out, the state starts to be the same thing as government, and government and the state start to become the same thing as society, and the individual gets consumed by that. That's what happened on 9-11. I mean, that's what, I mean, Mm -hmm. everybody was just, we were, and and I'm, I'm enough older than you, if that's a... I no, that don't makes know sense. If that's proper or not? You're my older, yes. But I remember, I was at Peter Crump Elementary. I was working on an air conditioner outside, and I remember the coach running out and said, "He said they just you bombed the World Trade Center." And it was like, "What? I mean, seriously? Are are you kidding?" Well, and, and see if you, as before you finish your statement. Here's what he actually writes. When war breaks out, patriotism, this is quoting a guy from 1970, when patriotism becomes the dominant feeling when war breaks out and produces immediately that intense and hopeless confusion between the relations that the individual bears and should bear towards the society of which he is a part. And, and say that's exactly what happened because I, I, we, we walked over and we went into the coach's office and we were watching on TV and I saw the second plane hit and was like, you got to be kidding me. Because we, yeah. were, we were thinking at that time, oh, this is a replay of the first plane hitting. No, it was the second plane that hit. 
And I remember saying these words, I want to go to New York and do something. Yeah. I, I, I want to get in my car right now and drive to New York and do something. Mm, that's how the vast majority of people felt. And then, that's how I felt when I was, what, 12 years old. Yeah. And then W stands on top of that pile of rubble and says, we're going to find you. We're going to hunt you down. We're going." Mm-hmm. And everybody was like, yeah. yeah. Here's my cell phone number. We'll put a boot in your ass. It's the American way. That's right. Take all of it. And I think there's a good thing about that. Now, I am a nationalist. I love this country. I think this is the the best country on the face of the earth. Probably the best one that's ever been. I'll put it this way. It's a good thing when it's really necessary. But what happens when you're on a constant war footing? Perpetual war, as Rand Paul laid out earlier, where we've already accomplished our goal. That feeling that we had, we made a decision. We're taking out the people that attacked us. We're taking out the people that ate and abetted the people who attacked us. And we're going to get it done. And we've got it done. But we're still there. That's because we have short-term memories. That's, that's the problem is we still think that they're flying planes into buildings. And that's been 20 freaking years ago. Well, and also look what happens. That when war breaks out, government and the state become virtually identical as we covered, so that opposing the government becomes an act of disloyalty. In peacetime, it's perfectly fine to criticize the president. But when it's a serious war, exactly it's almost right. treasonous. How many Democrats voted against I anything think only that one. GW? Only one. Yeah. So, also, people sort of change their lives completely to the effort. They really do. The people that used to only casually interact with the government now become fervent defenders of the state in every aspect. So, this is how you get things like the Patriot Act. How you get a whole new department made out of nowhere really quickly. Because we are so willing to give up liberty Mm -hmm. in order for security. And that is the most dangerous place you can possibly be. But that's where we are. That's what people want now, Joey. People want security. They don't want liberty. They don't want the freedom to go out there and, hey, the way this country was settled and formed was I'm going west and I'm going to find a piece of ground and I'm going to build a house when I cut down the trees and build it and I'm going to live there, and I'm going to raise a family. That's the way the country, and it might get real cold, and you might die, but that was liberty. Right. You had the opportunity. Now, but it's... But people, even if their lives weren't disrupted because of a shock like that, the lives weren't disrupted directly, people are willing to change their lives. I want to, we're running out of time, so I want to see if you agree with this, because Bourne doesn't pull any punches. This is pretty harsh language. He concluded... Quote, people at war become, in the most literal sense, obedient, respectful, trustful children again, full of that naive faith in the all-wisdom and all-powerful of the adult, the state, who takes care of them. What he referred to as this great herd machine functioned under a most indescribable confusion of democratic pride and personal fear that makes individuals who constitute the herd submit to the destruction of their livelihood, if not their lives, in a way that would formerly have seemed to them so obnoxious as to be incredible. Yeah. 
I do agree with that. Yeah. We're 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 more willing to what's the word? I want to I I can't find the word. We're willing to give over the power of our own decisions so that we're dependent on someone else advocate. It's not advocate, it's, it's allocate or whatever it is. But we're more willing to do that because that's easier for us to follow someone else rather than on our own say, no, I'm not doing this. I'm right. not going to be a part of this. I'm not doing it. That takes a lot more... Because you uh, feel like a traitor. Exactly. Because it's, it's you know, like peer pressure yeah. is what it is. Well, everybody else says we should do this. Then, I mean, I can't be the odd one, you know. But it's what you're doing is you're giving over your liberty to someone else in the search of security. Well, And, Bourne went on and to you s- get neither. Well, and Bourne went on to say the individual becomes a child on the back of a mad elephant. That he could neither control nor abandon, but was compelled to ride until the elephant decided to halt. This is the theoretical meaning of war is the health of the state. In times of peace, people are largely self-interested and interested by society, the people right around them. They interact casually with government, giving little thought to the state. But in times of war, everything reverses to the benefit of the state. And as for the impact on the individual, if war is the health of the state, then war is also the death of individualism. And again, board's not giving your usual anti-war critique. He's not talking about the bureaucracy or the military-industrial complex, all these things. He's actually saying in post-war America, right after World War One, that the they forgot that the real enemy is war itself, rather than Imperial Germany. In converting World War One into the equivalent of a holy war, which there were people from the pulpit saying we are the Christ nation, meant to sacrifice our. And say that's Ooh, so man. That's so. Wrong. Talk about using God's name in vain. In converting World War I into the equivalent of a holy war, the intellectual and psychological groundwork was laid for a future filled with what he termed, Randolph Bourne termed, the sport of the upper class, global conflict. I think we got a a host here on there. He calls it globalism. Yeah. Yeah. And here's the thing, too. Here's the real kicker. We've been talking about actual war, you know, bombing things and hurting people, killing people, destroying things. How think many about politics. Cold wars are out there. Well, but then think about how politicians speak to you on matters not of war, but in the language of war, in this war mentality. Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, this is our World War II. The world's going to end in 12 years if we don't do anything about climate change. The war on drugs, the war on poverty. What war the, on women. What the hell do we not have a war on in this country, according to the state and to the politicians that it benefits? It's tearing us apart. And, you know, don't get me wrong. I think there are times history has shown when you need that herd. You need those people locked shoulder to shoulder and ready to go and defend what their way of life is. But when that way of life becomes a perpetual herd, and always crisis to crisis to crisis, what the hell are we doing here? What happened to peacetime? So that is why that's an important lesson. War is the health of the state. It is very, it's very profitable. And, I mean, like it, love it, believe it, or don't believe it, money runs the world. And there's no justification. If there's not an immediate threat, 
and your congressman came to you and says, hey, we're going to spend a trillion dollars on, you know, building this bomber, you would say, no, that doesn't make sense. But if you feel like there's an imminent threat against the country, then, yeah, we need we need something to beat them with. I mean, we don't need anything to beat those guys over there. I mean, they're running around in dresses and herding goats over there. Well, it's what ridiculous. What I'm worried about is we're becoming so callous with our mentality, whether it's we're using the euphemisms of war and analogies for domestic policy, or we're so used to fighting essentially these bush wars with enemies that have nothing compared to us in terms of military ability and power, that we've become so callous in that mentality that the way we talk to other places that could actually punch us in the face, they may not win. Places like China, places like Russia, that's what scares the hell out of me. Yeah. They would be formidable. Yeah. I mean, very much so. I mean, it's insanity to even think about it because they're nuclear powers. It's insane. Well, that's mutual de- well, you world hope. destruction, you know. I mean, and that's that's the that's the part on defense spending and things like that. We do need a strong military. I am not anti-military, but we don't need to be over in Afghanistan. It, I, I I bet you anything if. Everybody just pulled out and just let those nomads fight one another for about 20 years. One of them would win. Mm-hmm. Now, they would be very strong, the one that won, but they're going to kill each other. Yeah. They've been doing this crap, Joey, for thousands of years. But Not hundreds, thousands of years. Well, And what I want to circle back to is, it, there, as you point out, there's always been conflict in human history. And so to see that this global conflict, wherever it may be, it might be the media focuses on Syria today or Afghanistan tomorrow, or we got to get back into Iraq, or maybe because Venezuela is not going quietly into the night, well, maybe we'll put 5,000 troops in Colombia. Hey, that's going to be the next one is to go to Venezuela. And then Yemen, don't forget Yemen, Yemen. is still out there. So whatever the evil de jure is... It's become nice. the sport of the upper classes, the globalist, if you will. And we keep falling for it. But I think a lot of people are waking up. A lot of people are tired of it. And so I agree with Rand Paul, and I want to compliment the president for suggesting this is the way we need to go, because that took a hell of a lot of backbone. Because that's the thing. He's still an individual. And there are probably a lot of people up there in circles of power who think his act is a betrayal. Oh, yeah, all of them do. Yep. I mean, how That's can why you they get, just passed this resolution. How can you get that resolution passed? Yep. Nonpartisan, that many people. It's never happened, or it has not happened since they decided to go into Iraq after 9 11. It's the last time. And what was that? crisis mode. Yeah, that's what everybody wants. <sighs> so the situation isn't hopeless, folks, but it's dire. And the only people who can stop it are the people. It's going to be a heavy lift, though. Yeah, but what 
worthwhile thing in life doesn't require a heavy lift. Nothing worth having. Amen. Thank you for joining me, Silverwood. Anytime. Joey Clark.